Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastek. In 1999, I went to a screening of The Haunting, starring Catherine Zeta-Jones. In hindsight, this was wildly inappropriate for an eight-year-old to be doing, but I was with my best friend Samantha from across the street, who was a couple years older than me, and her mom, but more importantly, her older brother and his best friend, who were both very good at getting us to think wildly inappropriate things were in fact good for children, like eating dog biscuits or breaking into my own house or watching a terrifying horror movie. Anyway, we're sitting in a suburban cinema watching the previews, and scary movies have scary previews, and by the opening credits, I am terrified. I ask Samantha's mom if we can go, and she very kindly ushers me out of the theater to watch the second half of Muppets in Space instead. There are two twists to this story. The first is that I suffered no humiliating teasing at the hands of Samantha's older brother, who was probably bribed not to do so, and the second is that today I have probably seen more horror movies than all of my friends combined. Somewhere in high school, I realized that while I did have one extremely terrifying nightmare every seven years, these had no correlation whatsoever with whether I'd tried to sit through The Blair Witch Project or The Shining the night before. Then in college, I read Carol J. Clover's book, Men, Women, and Chainsaws in a Film Theory class, and realized that horror movies, despite treating women like disposable straws and lumping the queer and disabled together as monsters, could be accidentally feminist, or queer, or environmentalist, or whatever, and could consciously or unconsciously challenge its audiences on thorny social issues. So I was delighted to spot, just in time for Halloween, the book It Came From the Closet, in which editor Joe Valisi asked 25 queer writers from across the spectrum to write about the horror movies that matter to them, from the original Halloween to Eyes Without a Face and Get Out. Carmen Maria Machada reclaims Jennifer's body for bisexuality. Jen Corrigan reads Jaws as a movie about the queer intimacy of three men on a boat, and Samika Sossman looks at the intersections of blackness, gayness, and racist housing policy in Candyman. The editor of the collection, Joe Valisi, who teaches writing at NYU, joins us to talk about the surprising, complicated joys of horror movies. Thank you so much for talking to me, Joe. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That introduction was so awesome because I feel like your experience uh, in so many ways mirrors mine and many of the contributors in the anthology, which is great. (laughs) So speaking of your experience getting into horrors, like how did you first find your way into scary movies? Yeah, so I am the youngest of four kids and our father loves horror movies and he brought horror into the house when we were very young. And since I was the baby, I had older siblings to watch it with. And so it was always just part of the fabric of our family to some degree. But, you know, knowing quite young that I was different, which were then, you know, clarified as gay and queer later in life, um, I always knew that my brothers and I especially were watching these movies for very different reasons. They were preoccupied with nudity and gore and um, sort of the -the over-the-top kills in the films. And I was really my eyes were on the final girl. I was always looking for her in the movie. I always wanted to see how she would outsmart 
the killer, but I also found myself looking for compassion and empathy with the villain or the monster. So it was very complicated duality that was happening. I just knew that I cared about different things than they did in the genre. Um, and I learned early on that if I expressed what those things were, it was great fertile ground to be, you know, uh, to be teased or, uh, to kind of out myself before I knew that's what I was doing. So as I got older, I, I don't know, I didn't repress the side of me that loved horror, but I began to fear that there was this incongruous relationship between my love for something that I thought was macho and masculine or something and the discovery of my queer self. And it wasn't until I was fortunately not too much older, but I realized that uh, queerness and horror went hand in hand and that there was a thriving subculture in the queer community that loved horror and had claimed it as theirs long before my little worries had started. So how did you find your way into that queer subculture and like, and what does it look like to love horror movies when you're when you're queer and maybe not necessarily seeing yourself as the hero on screen, but still seeing yourself on screen? Yeah, that's a great question. And you gave away your age before. So I was older than you in the 90s and was on AIM and AOL chat rooms and forums. Um, and that's where so much of that began. It was just wonderful horror chat rooms and sort of obscure horror forums where I began to realize that you know, behind avatars and the safety of uh, persona that they could create, so many of the people that I was speaking with were queer identifying. Um, it wasn't a specific, you know, I wasn't looking for queer horror forums or sub forums or anything like that. Uh, but it seemed that somehow most of my buddies online were gay or bisexual or pansexual um, or even transgendered. And, um, then I started to realize, huh, there must be a reason why this community is building in this way. Um, so I felt very secure and very comforted by that, even though, you know, by the late 90s, I wasn't, you know, I was still in high school, I wasn't out yet. Um, but it felt really reassuring to know that um, there were people who were thinking this way and, you know, and really digging into the queer coding of films and really showing me things that I didn't really have the eyes for yet. And, um, I got sort of an early education in how to look for this uh, coding in films that I don't think I would have seen if I didn't find uh, sort of a community that was already doing some of that work and laying the groundwork for it. So it began there. And then when I went to college and I you know, started actually meeting other queer people in the flesh, that I realized that, you know, I wasn't the only one who was obsessed with horror movies and that it was actually... Um, quite prominent and quite important to so many of them. I'm, you know, but I also want to say there are plenty of queer people I know who hate horror movies and, and feel like life is scary enough and difficult enough. And so I can also appreciate that they stay far away from those movies. I mean, I think it's really understandable why people don't like horror. And I think you're, you're right. On the first read, a lot of these movies can seem like the on, only the bad characters or only the weakest characters are women or are queer or gay coded, maybe not even explicitly out. Um, but that's why I thought that the sort of the final girl concept when I first encountered it was like so mind blowing. And you said you were always looking for the final girl. Can you talk about what the final girl is in, in like genre and also sort of 
why you glommed on to this figure even before you had a name for it, you know, because I, I doubt you had read that by the time you were 10. <laughs> no, no, no. And I actually, 2010 or 2012, I forget, I wrote an essay where I kept referring to the final girl as the last girl because I didn't know that somebody had actually coined the phrase. So it was even before then, I said, oh, wait a second, somebody is doing some some important scholarly thinking about this. Um, I I think that the simple answer is that for me, and I, I would I would assume a lot of other queer people identify with the final girl because the final girl is like always a little bit on edge and always a little bit smarter than everybody else and knows that something is going on. Their awareness of their surroundings is very heightened. And I think when you live in a queer body and mind, you are always on alert. Um, you're on alert when you're young to see if, you know, somebody knows your secret and you're alert um, all the time trying to figure out if you are in a safe environment, safe surroundings. Um, if there is somebody who understands you implicitly, we're always sort of looking. A good friend of mine says that being queer is kind of like a superpower and that you see and you hear things a little bit differently than others do. Um, and so I think that there's something wrapped up in that. I think the final girl in you know traditionally 80s and 90s films they got they got smarter and they lasted longer in the 90s and the aughts because in the 80s you'd always have a final girl like every friday the 13th has a final girl she makes it but usually at the end there's a twist and jason manifests and bursts through a wall anyway and kills her no matter what so it doesn't really matter right it sort of undoes all of that work and i think that as slashers got progressively more um, for whatever reason, understood the power of the final girl and that you could build a franchise off the same character. They had to do a little more work to make the final girl even smarter and worthy of celebration and worthy of audiences seeing this character and wanting to root for her through multiple films. Of course, you know, there, there's so much to unpack about why it always has to be a woman um, and that, you know, nobody wants to see a final guy, um, which is interesting. It always comes back to my tension with me and my brothers that they, they loved to talk about how unrealistic it was that, you know, this 100 pound woman could survive and outmaneuver, you know, Jason Voorhees, who's like seven feet tall and has a machete, right. Or could outsmart Freddy Krueger in the dream world. And, you know, just all of these um, sort of, constructs of what's feminine and what is masculine and what is realistic and what is not um, and how that measure suddenly matters depending who's watching the film. You know, the appeal is definitely there. I think that's, you know, no matter who you are watching the movie, you do want to glom mm -hmm. onto this character. But I'm like, I am really interested in the number of villains that the essay writers in this book related to too in yeah. some way um, yeah. and that's what's so interesting about the book too is it's not like film theory or anything it's that's in there obviously but mm -hmm. they're all personal connections to these movies and you know why would you have a personal connection to a villain say I mean I think the villains are always more interesting villains have to have a motive um, to some degree there has to be a motive sometimes horror can demystify by giving too much motive or retconning and you know rebooting Michael Myers 14 times, right? And then trying to always give some sort of backstory that explains the motive. But generally speaking, I think that, you know, there is a desire 
to know why someone goes bad or why a villain exists. We want to believe that nobody is sort of inherently uh, evil or has a lust for blood and violence and uh, dehumanization. But I think that often we learn in these movies that villains, the origin often comes from some sort of trauma. Um, it, you know, a lot of slasher movies in the 80s, you know, when the unmasking happens, it's because someone has been bullied or discarded or dehumanized in some way. And so they have to get revenge. And it's the only way to make their voice heard. And so I think there's some element of that. I don't think any of the writers who identify with the villains or the monsters want to be the villains or the monsters, but I think that they are all acknowledging the complexity of the monster and the villain, and that there is an inherent complexity to being queer. Like, it sounds reductive, but it's not. It's, it's you know, our interior selves are because of society, because of culture, because of so many constructs um, that we have no say in until we can actively break out of them. We are living these really complex, uh, diverse interior lives. Um, and so I think we see that in certain characters. And so you see it in the final girl, but you also see it in the villain. And I think that those two characters are always written in a way that invites those readings and invites all viewers to kind of, you know, take a side. Do you watch the horror movie because you want to see the rampage that the killer goes on, or do you watch it because you want to see how the killer gets their comeuppance and who ultimately, um, you know, perseveres in the end? Or do you not even know why you want to watch it? Like I was struck yeah. by that in in Richard Scott Larson's essay where he talks about the the unmasking of mm-hmm. Michael Myers in the beginning mm-hmm. as being a coming out, and I was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Yeah. But you know, there is also the the extra layered meaning here that. Some villains definitely are coded as queer or deviant in some way. And there's mm-hmm. like an equivalency mm-hmm. there, right? Especially, yeah. you know, in older movies, like queer is deviant in addition to whatever other yes. like murderous deviancy there might mm-hmm. be. Um, can you say more on that? And I guess the complexity of loving a movie that doesn't necessarily love you back. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's implicitly or explicitly uh, explored by the writers, I think that's sort of a central question that um, permeates throughout the anthology and that most contributors are reckoning with in some way because of, you know, you mentioned earlier, horror villains, often there's, you know, disability in there, there's transness, there's, um, you know, anything that deviates from the binary or what we consider, you know, cis, het, um, quote-unquote normal, uh, gets villainized or gets um, car- caricaturized. Is that right? I say it? <laughs> um, and I think that we're all trying to figure out exactly why we feel drawn to, to this genre, but I think what you pointed out with Richard Scott Larson's essay is that we sometimes don't know why we're drawn to it. Um, and I think giving ourselves permission to not have to answer all the time or like why like why do you like this thing that is bad for you or does not respect you or uh marginalizes you even further 
Um, I think that it's empowering to not always have to have a reason. And I think that the answer is complicated because people are complicated. Um, I think of sleepaway camp as probably the prime example of this. Sleepaway camp is um, sort of the quintessential queer slasher that is was decidedly not a queer film. It was not made, as far as we know, by uh, queer writers or directors. Um, it is insanely transphobic, super homophobic, but also crazy homoerotic and just in every way. It just has this camp factor, literally, and the concept of camp is just ratcheted up to a 12 at all times. Uh, the story itself is, you know, sort of a whodunit. And, and when you get to the final reveal, it is so, it is so offensive and so over the top and so mind blowing that anybody thought that it would be appropriate to put it on camera. Um, can we do spoilers here? Is that all right? Are we assuming that most people have? Yeah. yeah or that like, I don't think it's ruined if you know the ending of Sleepaway Camp. <laughs> right. <laughs> so at the end of Sleepaway Camp, the mousy, quiet girl that we would assume would be our final girl, the protagonist, Angela, um, it's revealed that Angela is the killer the whole time. But Angela is also Peter. And Peter has a penis. And you see it right on camera. There's this terrible composite image of the actress's head on a young guy's body and you know one of the other characters says oh my god i don't believe it she's a boy and it ends in this like over the top but really uncomfortable image and that movie is by any objective standard should be something that queer people should loathe should not want anybody to watch should not want to be emblematic of queer horror in any way, but it is sort of so severe that it loops back around and becomes ours. It is now this um, queer horror artifact. It's something that you show people to say, look how gay this movie is. Look how queer this film is. Like all the things that it's doing that are so campy and outrageous. And it's, you know, celebrated. I don't want to speak for every person i'm sure there are plenty of people who are totally offended by it and think that it's awful but uh most of the queer horror lovers that i know hold sleep weight camp up in high regard um and it is by all accounts a terrible film it's a terrible script it's terribly made it's super low budget um but all of these factors when combined make it this really prime example of the things that we're talking about in the anthology and why we gravitate towards horror. I was going to mention Sleepaway Camp 2 because you can read yourself into a horror movie and there are subversive readings of movies. And then also another fascinating thing about horror movies is like retrospectively, it's incredible to watch something mm -hmm. like Sleepaway Camp and be like, wow, it was really that explicit, huh? Like <laughs> they <laughs> yeah. really felt comfortable putting that in a movie and that's the twist, right? And that's what you leave it mm -hmm. on. You leave the viewer on. Isn't it horrible? Not only isn't it horrible that she is the killer, but isn't it horrible that she is he and we're now going to conflate it with mental illness and child abuse. And, you know, the film just stops there. If somebody were to remake Sleepaway Camp and wanted to keep that twist, 
I think it would only be responsible to have that revelation come at the end of the second act and actually reckon with what's happened to this character. You know, they made many sequels later, um, and they cast Bruce Springsteen's sister as Angela, and they just kind of do away with that ending by saying that she had gender reassignment surgery, the end, and now she's a crazy camp counselor who's going to kill more teens from multiple films. And so there there was this really interesting, like, okay, we're going to keep going with this film that had such an infamous ending, but we're not actually going to acknowledge or do anything with what the film left us with. You know, and it's interesting, too, because... Um... There's one essay that stuck with me in a collection by Zephyr Lasowski about mm-hmm. horror movies that don't really leave space for a subversive reading. Yeah. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the writers in this collection address disability or, or queerness or that element of the villain. Yeah, we've had a few panels and events and subtext comes up quite a bit. And Carmen Machado said that subtext is delicious and we want it, right? And that's one of the things that makes horror super satisfying and I totally agree with her. Um, But there are also occasionally films that don't really have much subtext or don't leave a lot of room for it, right? Because a film is so decisive in how it treats a character or a concept, right? Mm -hmm. And so Zephyr's essay, both talking about Samara from The Ring and also Zelda from Pet Cemetery, um, as sort of the permission that is given to see the disabled as so um, so horrific and that there's not a lot of room to forgive those characters because often that disability, whether it's mental illness, whether it's a physical disability, tends to be the plot point in those movies, right? That is the reason why this person is scary or is haunting you it's so funny we're at an event where they screened a piece of Pet Cemetery and they showed the scene with Zelda and the little sister is a beautiful little blonde girl and she's trying to feed Zelda and Zelda is choking on her pea soup and it is just such a ridiculous over-the-top moment and the framing could not be clearer right there is no subtext it's all text it's so loud it's so ridiculous it's so much and it's only goal is to scare you and to think that no matter what happened to Zelda, no matter what her tragic story is, you're only meant to be afraid of her and not feel badly for her. Same is true for Samara in the ring. She apparently just wants to be mothered and wants to be loved, but can't help but be evil. It's kind of difficult to find the subtext there. So I think that it was important to include that essay because I think it's not something that gets discussed or considered as much. I think that somebody could actually do one anthology that is about queerness and disability in horror movies on its own. Yeah, and there's just a huge range in there too, and it is fun to read the differences. But at the same time, I did think it was interesting that like certain words and themes cropped up across all of them. Yeah, totally. Adolescence, for instance, or like teenagers, you know, if you're going to watch a high school movie, it's like two genres, right? You've got teenage romance or you have horror. (laughs) I think you're right. I think that childhood, adolescence, um, I would say the majority of the essays at least gesture towards the past in that way. I'm not surprised because I think that, you know, when queer people are coming of age during those formative years, we don't get to always participate in 
romantic life or social life in the same ways as our cishet peers. Um, it's not always true, and it's certainly changing a lot for Gen Z, which I'm so thrilled about. But generally speaking, I think that if we go back, right, millennial, Gen X, prior, there is sort of a solitude that goes back to that secret, to that masking, to that thing that you can't share with everybody else. And so it makes sense to me that a lot of these essays dip back into the past. And the title of the collection, It Came From the Closet, is rooted very much so in both the past and the present, right? We've crawled out of this grave-like closet, and here we are. But in thinking about where we came from, we also have to consider where we are now. And, and I think a lot of great horror is happening now. And I think that naysayers who are looking at like Jordan Peele films and are so upset about social messages being shoved down their throat or making that uh, claim. And I find it so hilarious because it's like, what do you, what do you think the horror genre is? Like Black Christmas, I, that's actually probably the best slasher ever made, I think. And there is a literal abortion plot line at the center of that film. And it's 1968 or whatever. Like horror has always been doing this. So this complaint from sort of trolley incel culture online, um, you know, doesn't make any sense and doesn't hold water because horror has always been addressing social issues at the core. Right. Yeah. It's been really exciting to see the crop of especially like female filmmakers and black oh, yeah. filmmakers who are coming up. There was a great strand of like black horror filmmaking earlier on with Blackula mm -hmm. and Ganji and Hess mm -hmm. and whatnot. Totally. But um, there were never really all that many women oh, filmmakers. No. Um Ever. And now you've got, you know, Karen Kusama, Jennifer's yep. Body, but also like the liberty to make a movie like The Invitation, which is not really about women at all, just about yeah. rich yeah. people. So that's to me the value of horror is like it can get you really in your body mm -hmm. and make you feel vulnerable and scared. And like, I think anyway, that kind of weakens your your intellect, maybe that might resist some of those <laughs> themes. It heightens your empathy, you know, with whoever you're engaging with. And if that's someone who you know, as someone you wouldn't necessarily have sympathy for in real life, like suddenly maybe you will after. Yeah. I think that that is very true. And I, I had been reckoning with an experience that I wanted to write about, but didn't really know how, um, my own contribution to the anthology, uh, is about my and my husband's, uh, surrogacy experience, which can only be described as a kind of body horror, um, uh, it took us about five years to conceive our son via surrogacy. Um, the process is incredibly fraught, um, aside from being expensive and uh, logistically nightmarish. You know, we dealt with a lot of loss, and with that loss came a lot of blood and a lot of bloodletting. But what did help me get through was to write my own horror screenplay. It just felt like I needed to change up the medium uh, in terms of my writing, and I needed to do something that let me reconstruct reality and then go left and move into sort of supernatural uh, Rosemary's Baby and Omen territory as a way to sort of exercise uh, these demons, so to speak, my own queer horror screenplay led the way uh, for me to craft my essay. I ended up writing an essay that connected to Paul Solitz's 
2009 film, Grace, sort of short log line to it is that a pregnant woman is in a car accident and her baby, who is soon to be born, dies in her womb. And she insists on carrying the baby to term until she goes into natural labor. And after the baby is born, she basically wills it back to life by breastfeeding it. But it doesn't take long until everybody realizes that the baby does not need milk. The baby needs blood. And then Grace turns into sort of a schlocky uh, vampire zombie baby B-movie that uh, has a terrible like animatronic baby doll at one point and, you know, but is still really effective. And it felt really meaningful to use this genre that uh, has meant so much and has been so important to me to help me to process this experience. Um, I definitely think that horror can help us to get through difficult experiences. It doesn't have to just be, you know, queer experience, though, of course, that is um, one of the conceits of the anthology and one of the reasons that it exists. But I think that for the general audience, horror maybe does not get as much credit as it deserves for standing in for trauma and experiences that are difficult to wrap our heads around. And so much horror is based in metaphor, right? Um, And then the metaphor becomes real on screen because horror can take those liberties with monsters and creatures and bending reality. You know, I mean, some, some horror is obviously very loud and very in our faces. Um, Like we said, uh, it can be absent of subtext, but I think that most horror, even when it feels egregious and obvious, Uh, is still working subliminally in some way. I think there's a reason why if you love horror, you become kind of a completist by default. We have links in the show notes to the new collection, It Came From the Closet, edited by Joe Valisi, as well as a couple essays that are excerpted across the internet. We've also got a list of my personal favorite horror movies, some of which I only saw for the first time this year because... There are always more horror movies to see. There's something for everyone on that list, assuming you like baseline spookiness. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.